Hello, party people, and welcome back to another episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. <sighs> we are continuing last week's discussion where we talked about the gut brain axis and the nervous system. And now we're going to take more of a deep dive into the vagus nerve, which I'm super pumped to talk about. I don't know about you, Amy. Do you want to do you want to tell the people at home why they should care about the vagus nerve? Maybe let's imagine that somebody's new to this world and they haven't fallen oh, down gosh. the rabbit hole of Facebook groups and Instagram posts and podcasts like ours. And they're seeing this episode and they're like, ah, oh, vagus nerve, like I don't have a nerve problem. Why should people care about the vagus nerve and the gut brain axis as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I to try to make it as simple as possible, I mean, the vagus nerve bridges the connection between your gut and your brain. So it allows communication to go from your gut to the brain and then the brain back to the gut. Um, So a lot of the autonomic controls uh, that that help with gut function or that control gut function are going to be through the vagus nerve and through signaling for the vagus nerve. So things like digestive capacity so stomach acid and you know digestive enzyme release and bile flow and blood flow to the gut motility Um, yeah motility all these really crucial aspects of gut function require the brain this is a brain-based function like we digestion and motility are not something that we think about Thank God. Could you imagine being like, I need to digest right now, you know, and then we, we, I don't know. I feel like a lot of our listeners wish that they had that capacity to do that because that sounds easier than what they're currently struggling with. But another way to put it is, can you imagine if you had to tell your heart to beat right. every single time <laughs> right? and like decide how fast and how forcefully the heart contracts or beats or like if you were always in control of your breathing? Okay. Let me ask you this. Is it just me that has this brain lesion or have we all done this? I feel like this is a human thing, but now I want to get a gauge for this. Have you ever like focused on breathing and then you get into this weird mental space where you're like, I can't unfocus on my breathing. Okay. And it feels like it could be dangerous to do that. Even though you know damn well, it's not dangerous. You know, it's hilarious. This is an OCD thing. Like there's, and again, I think like you could have that as a normal human being as an intrusive thought of like, oh, I can't stop focusing on my hiccups or I can't stop focusing on my breathing or I can't stop focusing on my eyes blinking. So that's like actually, it's called like somatic OCD, like where you like hyper-focus on like your body's normal functions. So like Mm. your heart, like hearing your heartbeat or like different sensations within the body. But yeah, that actually like is a thing. Like there's, there's maybe a normal aspect of it where we've all probably had a moment of like, oh gosh, why am I so focused on my blinking? But then it can become actually disordered with like an OCD situation where people can't literally legitimately can't stop focusing on their blinking or their, you know, swallowing or different sensations with the body. It's very interesting. Well, I guess that makes sense too. Because if, if we remember from the OCD conversation for a brief tangent, we were talking about OCD is just intrusive thoughts that get sticky and they stick around for longer. Right. Everybody has an intrusive thought every now and then, but most people are able to let them go and release them and just go, oh, Crackhead Steve is back. If you don't know who Crackhead Steve is, go back to the OCD episodes. <laughs> but with OCD, 
it's it's like you start listening to crackhead Steve and you start thinking, ooh, he makes a good point. That's really valid. I should be concerned about that. Oh my God. And well, similarly, yeah. like, I don't think I have OCD, but I've had a couple little moments in my life where like I focused on my breathing and mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, I can't unfocus on it now. Right, right. Yeah. I think yeah. again, like that's totally normal. I think you're right. It is really interesting. There's some studies showing that when they actually follow people with OCD and follow people without OCD, they can't tell who has OCD and who doesn't on just the thoughts that come up because the normal people have some of the same maybe disturbing or weird or taboo or intrusive Mm. type thoughts, but they just don't hook into them. Like They're just like, well, that was weird, and they kind of move on. Or like maybe they get sucked in for a second, but then not very long, whereas someone with... OCD gets very latched on so it's just funny like the dysfunction is not having the thought or like having the thought what if I can't stop focusing on my blinking the dysfunction is how much that kind of consumes your time and energy yeah and how hooked you get so yeah it's it's really interesting yeah that makes sense sure but that is tangentially related I mean the nervous system is all related to itself right right? but Um, I think you worded it well. The vagus nerve is the physical connection connecting your brain and your gut. So when we talk about the the brain-gut axis and things like digestive function and regulation of your digestive system, a lot of that's coming from the vagus nerve. Like a lot, a lot, a lot. And it's this huge area of research right now because as humans do... We're trying to figure out ways to not only treat vagus nerve dysfunction, uh, but also we're trying to figure out, well, how do we quantify this, right? So Mm -hmm. like heart rate variability, how do we measure and track and judge so that we can then diagnose somebody or evaluate somebody? And I don't know, we've maybe talked about this a little bit. I know we have privately, but... I just don't know if we're there yet with the consumer bait, like the wearables industry. Yeah. I just don't know if we're there yet. And I I might have shared this before, but I'll just share. I feel like I handle stress pretty well and I feel pretty like balanced and healthy. And I think I'm generally like a positive person and pretty happy and pretty fulfilled So all of the things that kind of get talked about with like vagal tone and nervous system health, like I feel like I've got a lot of those going. We all have our blips on the radar or our weird like six months of crazy stress, but I feel like I'm doing pretty good in that department. But what's freaking weird is that when I was wearing that Aura Ring, which is one of these HRV tracking devices, my HRV was terrible compared to yours. And you have shared that you struggle with more anxiety and OCD stuff. Mm, And that a friend of mine who struggles with a ton of anxiety and a ton of OCD, her HRV was even better than yours. Yeah. So I don't know if we're at a point yet where we could compare that stat to each other. Like maybe you could observe your own trends over time and notice what improves your number. But I don't think we could say like, oh, Susie has a vagus nerve problem because her HRV is 23 and Michelle has a great vagus nerve because hers is 192. Like, I don't know if we're quite there yet as a side note. So please don't go running out and buying like whoops and aura rings and all of that stuff yet, people. Yeah, I would say I've noticed that as well. Like in terms of 
aura ring stuff. Like, it was really interesting with pregnancy, like, with bigger changes in hormones and stuff like that. Like, seeing that your average heart rate goes up about 10 beats per minute. Seeing that, um, like, with very little, like, even at the start of pregnancy, so not even, like, when you are, like, big and can't sleep and feel terrible, you know, there seemed to be a really strong, pretty consistent shift to, like, a higher resting heart rate and a lower heart rate variability. So I do think that there is some interesting, like, within yourself sample data, like, looking at data within yourself. But I do think you're right. Probably trying to do too much comparison could be problematic. Like, you're much better off trying to see what might impact your personal HRV um, broadly. There's always going to be some degree of error with some of those devices, too. So, like, hanging on every data data point, hanging on, like, whoa, what affected my HRV this day versus just trends. So, um, the, the thing that I, I believe is wildly inaccurate about those data is some of the sleep data for the most part, like maybe total sleep is okay, but some of the, some of the, um, stage tracking, I really question, um, just because again, I, having looked into it a little bit more, there's a lot of issues with wearables and like tracking sleep staging. Really the only way to track that legitimately is looking at like brain waves and stuff when you're sleeping. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think the wearables similar to some other tools have their merits, but also, you know, have major flaws to me you're much better off focusing and spending time and energy on the actual strategies versus getting really wrapped up in the data. I agree. And I think another way to phrase this is I think that these, these devices, which again, can potentially be interesting if you have a lot of data over the course of months or years. um, I would say I think that they are more geared for somebody who's interested in long term strategizing. It's mm-hmm. not an instant gratification thing. So right. if you go spend $400 on a Whoop or an Aura Ring or a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, it, it's not going to give you usable information that you can start implementing tomorrow or next week. And going back to our recent episode, Long versus Short, most people are s- still kind of stuck in that short term, like, I want to feel better tomorrow, I want to feel better next week. And I've had conversations with FODMAP Freedom students where this came up in a Q&A this time. I forget the context, but I we brought up the aura ring and somebody got kind of twitchy was like, should, do you recommend them? Should we go get one? And I'm like, no, no, in part because I could already sense the vibe that right. you think it's going to give you magical information that's going to make you better next week. And that's not at all what this is about. It's going to be something that can help you very gradually over years maybe. And it's just like kind of fun, interesting data more so than it is diagnostic data. That's, that's what I would say about these tools. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and, you know, we have research that shows certain strategies impacting the vagus nerve in a really positive way. So just trusting 
that there is evidence that these things work. You don't necessarily need the objective data of your HRV going up to to notice a, a physical effect in your body. It's it's that comes down to not even trusting yourself. You needing that objective data to see that this thing is working or not. So. Um, well, it goes back to our test, don't guess episode, right? Right, right. Um, and and mm-hmm. I do understand. I don't want people to get discouraged or feel like we're making fun of people. It's, I think it's understandable that you want to feel better ASAP. It's understandable that you feel like objective data will help you feel better ASAP. Um, we're just sharing, like, we don't want you to go spend $400 on a device that's not going to help you with that particular goal. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, if you had the chance, or if you had the opportunity on a budget to spend money in certain ways, you might want to spend money on an app that will help you do breath work versus an HRV tracking tool. Um, And there are cheaper tools, too. I know some people use, like, some of the apps online. I haven't had the best experiences with the app, with the phone apps. I find that they're wild... I, I like the consist the the consistency of the data seems weird to me. Um, where the one that I use, you would like hold your finger up to the camera of your phone. Have you seen that those ones? Yeah. Um, again, I didn't necessarily have a great experience. I feel like with those, but I feel like this I, is over asking from our smartphones. Right back in the day, people. I still remember when I had my flip phone or my yeah. first BlackBerry. And that was revolutionary. The good old Versus days. Versus we co- we're in this weird, funky place in humanity where we fully expect computers and the internet and cell phones to be able to do literally everything for us. And mm-hmm. the crazy thing is we're kind of almost there. They 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 could do almost everything. Right. But I feel like that's, I don't know, that's a big unreasonable ask from our tech. <laughs> yeah, it's, again, I just, I've, historically not had the best results with that so that's just kind of my two cents there i agree we just might not be there yet to to analyze hrv via via the phone but that's okay because we know the strategies this is the thing right researchers who have labs and a ton Mm -hmm. of expensive equipment and data analysis and you know algorithms and all of this stuff that is out of our reach those people are doing the footwork and they're doing the functional MRIs and the HRV testing and the brain waves and whatnot. And they have proven time and time again, the strategies that do tone the vagus nerve and the, the qualities you can look for in your life that do improve vagal tone. So mm. I guess it's, it's almost like put your faith in the research, not in the gadget. Right. right. Again, we know the things that will shift the shift you more into a to a better uh to ha- for you to have v- better vagal tone again trust that and just move forward in that way and you're going to be budgeting your time energy and money more efficiently if you do that and again if you want to do some gadget stuff that's totally fine too i do it um again i take a lot of stuff with a grain of salt i'm not analyzing every day and you know deciding how my day is going to go based on my hrv some people do that with like workouts. Uh, I, I that again like yeah they have the readiness score right which again like 
I, I question some of this stuff a little bit. Uh, so well, can't you give yourself your own ready to score by right. judging if you feel good or not. Right. And, right. and I've seen, um, I think it was with a Fitbit, but I remember my mom saying once that she woke up and she felt like she had a good night's sleep. But then she looked at her Fitbit data and it said she got a bad night of sleep. And then she was tired all day. Right. I was like, why? Why did you trick yourself into believing the robot? You had a I better know. experience initially. And then looking at the data skewed the rest of your day. If we could just consistently do the opposite, like if the app lied to you every day and was like, you got the best sleep of any human ever. Way right. to go you. Or like, you're the healthiest ever. I could get behind it then, but those days where you feel pretty good, but the ring or the device tells you otherwise, that, that, oh, it's just, it's a slippery slope. And I'll share that this is not Vegas nerve exactly, but I think it's related. Uh, we should do an episode about mindset and placebo one of these days, because oh, yeah. there's some research that is freaking wild. So there's one study I remember, um, they looked at, um, like the, the, the people who work at hotels and they clean the rooms, the like uh, mates. And they divided the group of employees into two people or two groups. One group was told, hey, guys, by the way, BTW, the amount of walking and lifting that you do because of your job actually meets the requirements for the American Heart Association, like heart healthy guidelines and you're like you get more movement and more exercise than the average american does and you're gonna you're like super healthy way to go the other group was told nothing they were the the control group the people who were told that their day-to-day life was super healthy and like met this criteria for heart health they lost weight amy oh my <laughs> a gosh, lot yeah. of weight it was like 10 kilograms on average and their cholesterol went down, their blood pressure went down, these people got healthier, and they changed nothing. Right. They monitored, you know, I forget if they were monitoring steps or whatnot, but they didn't change their activity level. Just hearing that they were healthy was enough to convince them that they were healthy, and then they changed their mindset, and they got healthier. It is freaking wild. So again, like, in the case of my mom, she convinced herself that she did not in fact get a good night's sleep and then she really truly was tired because of that external data Mm. that told her to go against her experience in her own body so bizarre bizarre fascinating stuff well that reminds me too of um one visualization study where they had people visualize doing an exercise they were wearing a cast so like they had broken their arms they had a whole bunch of people in casts and they had them visualize doing like arm exercises so like none of them did anything and when they took they the couldn't. cast off it was they, the people that did the visualization versus the pe- the controls that didn't had 25 percent more muscle mass like how weird is that yeah another one just to flush this out there was a study this was probably like good 20 30 years ago but they took college age men who did not currently exercise, and they broke them up into two groups. One group of young men were shown how to weightlift, and they started doing some weightlifting. The other group were told to sit on their butt and visualize that they were doing weightlifting. And then they went and they tested their strength 
after it was like six or eight weeks that they did this, the strength gains were identical. Yeah, it's crazy. it was like twenty four percent versus twenty five percent increase in strength, and the one group just sat on their keister and they did nothing, and they just visualized that they were lifting weight. And I remember when I heard this in a seminar years ago, uh, Brian Walsh talked about that study, and I remember he's he's got a great sense of humor. He was like, and that's why. I envision myself lifting a 600-pound weight every single day. <laughs> and we all cracked up. But yeah, like, why aren't we using this sort yeah. of stuff in our day-to-day life? And why are we convincing ourselves that we're sick and tired and we're never going to get better? It, it's not good for your vagus nerve, and it's not good for you. And it's certainly not going to manifest the life that you want if you want to talk about manifestation stuff. But I want to. I know that we have a little bit more of a time constraint for this episode's recording, so I want to make sure we have time. I wanted to share a teeny bit of polyvagal theory stuff. Uh, yeah, because I, I think the vagus nerve conversation could go so many directions. Truthfully, we could have like a six-part series on this. There's like the neurology and the neuroanatomy side of it, right? So we talked about that a lot last time about what do we do to keep neurons healthy and the pathways and the anatomy and the nuclei and, and whatnot. And the, the things that the vagus nerve does in the body and like where it goes through the body. Um, There's the microbiome gut influencing, you know, bottom up kind of approach. And you could have this whole conversation of the microbiome affecting the vagus nerve, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we could talk about neurotransmitters potentially, but there's also this this interwovenness with psychology and the field of mental health because the vagus nerve ultimately is all about perceived safety, perceived connectedness. It's it's all the like warm fuzzy feelings. That's all vagus nerve stuff. So that brings up this this elephant in the room potentially. If you are fundamentally unhappy or you you feel like your life is pointless and you don't have meaning in your life or you're surrounded by people that you do not enjoy spending time with, um, to, to put another way, potentially, if you're miserable, then you don't really have a snowball's chance in hell of getting the vagus nerve to work properly. But the thing is, I don't say that to sound like a Debbie Downer, the thing is that you could start consciously changing your perception of the world and the stories that you tell yourself, and you could start doing the work, so to speak, from the psychology and mental health standpoint, and try to reframe your life and your existence and like find meaning in life and seek out meaningful relationships and spend less time on the relationships that drain you. And you could start seeking out things that will ultimately facilitate vagal tone. But it's you've got to be aware of it first, and you have to be aware that it's a problem before you're able to take action on that. But that's a huge thing with the vagus nerve that's not talked about. The gut people want to talk about the microbiome piece of it. The functional neurology and neurology people want to talk about like the pathways of the nuclei and the anatomy and stuff. But the psychology side of it is probably the most important piece, in my opinion. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up. And it reminds me of the conversation we had with Jennifer Franklin, how 
being connected is the fundamental part of toning your vagus nerve and having a healthy vagus nerve. But, you know, we have people who, you know, want to gargle and gag and do breath work, which like, again, is all great. And I think can be really helpful. But again, if your life is, if you have a really negative um, view of your life or you're just miserable or certain circumstances are not great, you're much better off working on the key circumstances in your life that might be making you unhappy and disconnected than getting really in the weeds by gargling all the time or doing breath work. Um, Well, that's that's something that, well, and I, I think that that's something just as a provider I've gotten more attuned to as well. I feel like when I first started, it's like, you should be gargling. You should be gagging. Like you should be doing all these things. Like it'll help strengthen your vagus nerve. But again, at its core, like from a hierarchy of needs standpoint, if the connection isn't there, you're almost shit out of luck when it comes to trying to really strengthen the vagus. um, If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly, much more difficult to get vagus right. nerve activation under those circumstances. I think, um, and, and again, this is the gargling cracks me up. I knew we were going to mention that at some point. So the gargling, for example, it just feels so much like human arrogance at its finest, right? Like we could trick this nerve into doing what we want to do. And we're going to ignore all of the foundational problems from a psychology standpoint, because psychology and, and mental health is icky, sticky, yicky. And we don't want to deal with that garbage. No, we're going to talk about the pathways and the anatomy and stuff. And it's, it's not to say that that's untrue. Gargling right. does utilize the vagus nerve somewhat. And like the ear clip on the tragus, that does stimulate the vagus nerve. But do you really think that you're going to get what you want out of the experience if you just try to bamboozle the vagus nerve while leaving all of the stressors and all of the like mental health garbage intact. I just, I don't think that's reasonable. And I think that's again, human arrogance at its finest thinking that we can outfox the body somehow. Well, and it, it, what's funny um, again, like earlier on in my work with people, even when you suggest gargling, it's not enjoyable. And so people Compliance was very low, I found. Like, it's one thing if you already gargle every night, like, you gargle when you brush your teeth or something, and it's like, maybe just do a little bit longer or something, or, like, you just add a little bit of an element to it, but if you're gargling a lot during the day, like some of the um, brain-gut axis people suggest, I I just think it's hard to stick with because it's just, you start dreading it. Um, And honestly, it feels counter to the entire vagus nerve conversation, right? Right. We just said that it's about happiness and connectedness and all the warm, fuzzy feelings. And if you do the gargling, the functional neurology people will say that you have to gargle vigorously until your eyes tear up. Like, that is so (laughs) unfun, Right, right. Honestly, like I'm not disputing the wiring and the neurology of that, but the fact that it's just miserable to do and it's unfun and they tell you that you should gargle for like 10 minutes a day, it's just not only is it not going to have the therapeutic effect that you think it is, 
it might actually be detrimental to the vagus nerve in a weird way because it's such a like stupid feeling, miserable You're thing to do. You're dreading it. And then when you fall off the wagon and you become uncompliant, quote unquote, then you're going to feel guilty and you're going to go into the shame spiral of, oh, crap, I have the appointment with my functional person next week and they're going to ask me if I've been gargling. Oh, and I completely fell off the wagon on that. Oh, I'd better get back on the wagon this week and I'm going to gargle for 20 minutes a day. I'm going to do extra, extra good because they're going to ask me, you know, it's like, when you know you have a dentist appointment coming up and you're like, ooh, I'd better floss. <laughs> They're right. going to ask me. Right. But that's, you know, that whole guilt shame spiral thing. Also, mm-hmm. not good for the vagus nerve, people. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, I, I think the cornerstone being connection is so critical. Just having a meaningful full life is going to do more for the vagus nerve than gargling ever will. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? So... Yeah, I, I I do think we're always looking for quick hacks and that sort of thing. And maybe, again, having some humming or singing or doing some things, if you enjoy, like like doing it, could be beneficial as long as other things are, are moving in a better direction. But what we find is that a lot of people are, are skipping the core foundational pieces to a healthy vagus nerve and are just focusing on the gargling or you know, the breath work, which I love breath work too. But at the same time, you know, if you're doing delayed exhale breathing, which has been shown to to help the vagus nerve, if you're doing that, but then again, are miserable all day at your job and you don't have meaningful relationships, it's just, it's, it's going to be really hard to make progress. And again, like you said, we're not doing this to poo poo some of the hard work that you're doing. It's more just trying to make sure that you're using your time and energy efficiently and not getting stuck in the weeds when there might be bigger fish to fry. Yeah, well, and, and honestly, just zooming out as far as possible here. The reason you and I record this podcast episode and, and the podcast in general, the reason we do any of what we do is because we want people to feel better. And we yeah. want people to feel healthy and nourished and happy and lead a complete life. We're not, I mean, I enjoy talking to Amy for sure. And I hope the, the feeling is mutual, but we're here trying to give you tools and tell it like it is and dispel some of these myths and give you more practical, uh, reliable tools because probably a lot of you have been doing the gargling and you know the the neurological or microbiome based vagus nerve work and it's not working yet and you need something different and you need something that actually will work so we're here to give you tools that work um i have one too the i if i may i'm going to walk you guys through an exercise so i want to put a plug in first though uh unfortunately i actually reached out to this woman because I wanted her to come on the podcast. But uh, she, her whole, her whole thing has blown up in the last couple of years, at least that's my perception of it. Um, I'll find her Instagram in a second. Her name is Jessica McGuire. I don't know if you've seen her stuff. Um, I think her Instagram might be rebalancing the nervous system. But I can't swear to that I'll have to find it towards the end of this episode. But Mm. I just was taking her, she has a vagus nerve class. 
And it was really well done. I really, really recommend it. I forget what it was now, because I registered for it like two years ago. But I think it was like a couple hundred bucks. It wasn't terribly priced. And she gives a lot of practical tools. But this, I really enjoyed towards the end of the course, she had this little series of questions to think about. And you could use this as an evaluation tool, but also to think about how you could actually start to influence your vagus nerve in everyday life. So she was talking about the concept of play or playfulness and and how that's a really good state for the nervous system to be in. And, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds with polyvagal theory too much, but she was saying it's basically blending like the really good, happy, fulfilled, content ventral vagal side of things with just a little splash of sympathetic, like you're excited, you're jazzed. Like that's right. That's, so she called it a blended state for the nervous system. But she asked these couple of questions. Who brings out your most playful side? And I thought about it. I was like, okay, you know, and you don't have to tell me right now. But I immediately thought of my best friend who lives in San Francisco. I thought of you because we're goofballs together. Um, I thought about my best friend from high school, best friend from college. Um, you know, I start, I start making the list in my head. Um, then who do you enjoy doing playful things with? And that made me think of my daughter, especially, and yeah. my mom. Like they're the two, because pri- they're, they're two people in my life who are always down for an adventure. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be going to the gas station down the road, but if we're like on some weird mission, it could be an adventure with them, especially. Yeah. Or like, I just, um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little playful thing um, that I'm working on at the end of the episode, if I remember. Uh, then continuing this little quiz, what activities feel like play to you? And I think I shared with you over the weekend, I went and walked around the woods around our new house. So I, I went into the woods and I found a really good walking stick and I was poking at the ground for snakes. So I didn't get bit, hopefully. Um, And I just I wandered the woods for like an hour. And I was using an app to try to identify different trees and different plants, taking pictures of all these different plants, hoping and praying I didn't encounter snakes and ticks, which I did not. Um, But that was play to me or like the ocean or being around water just in general. Those were some examples that I came up with for me personally. what activities would you like to try? Like, is is there something new or something that you haven't done in a while that you want to try that could be playful and fun and bring this into your life more so? Uh, what are the places where you feel a sense of playfulness? So again, anything with water for me, or nature, or animals. Oh my god, I don't, I don't even care. It could be a lizard. And I'm I'm talking to it like, oh my gosh, you're such a precious baby. I prefer furry animals for the record, but any animal, and I'm just smitten with it. So animals, um, then following the last question, what is it about these places that makes them playful? So I said the water, what is it about the water? Well, you could see any, you could see so many living creatures, you could see a fish, you could see a dolphin if you're out at the ocean. Uh, you could see tadpoles, you could see all sort of weird like bugs and wildlife. Like I think it's the wildlife that that makes it really playful and cool for me because you're always seeing something different. Yeah. And then last but not least, how would you like to integrate more play into your week? So, mm, good question. Right? 
I, it was a really great series of, of questions that it really got me thinking. And what was really freaky and fun, as she asked the question, who brings out your most playful side? I kid you not, best friend who lives in San Francisco texted me within wow. a minute. I, I was like, oh, I was just thinking of you. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it reminds, kind of spooky. It reminds me of, of something we talked about last time, just on the nervous system in general, how the nervous system really needs stimulation. And that's kind of what play does. But yeah. it can do so in, in more of a novel and unique way. And that's something that, again, for me personally, I'm not necessarily a huge traveler. Like, I don't have an itch to travel. Now, I can go on some trips and have some fun, especially if it's to the mountains or doing something more outdoorsy. But that's really not something that I would just yearn for. So it it's interesting to think about, like, how can you get some adventure like some people think about oh I'll go on vacation but you can't really do that every week whereas you could maybe start playing the guitar go rock climb once a week or you know do a tennis lesson sometimes I I think people don't really invest in in a week-to-week standpoint because they invest in like these big shebangs um like these big American way right these big vacations overwork yourself into the ground and then you wait for that big luxurious vacation and you jam pack everything into that week or two vacation yeah and then you're exhausted and then you come back and you have to go back to work yeah and i would say just as an adult learning new skills can be really great like i loved i learned the guitar sort of when cc was pregnant and i haven't picked up when cc was pregnant or sorry when i was i'm not letting that one go (laughs) when i was was pregnant with cc i learned the guitar (laughs) and again i know enough of it now that i can just pick up and play a lot of different songs and i can look up songs and learn to play them which was kind of the goal it was never the goal to be a professional musician and take like years of lessons but so that was really fun and then more recently I've been playing tennis and that's really fun but like it's always looking forward to the two or three times a week I get to play tennis at this point and I just can see myself probably throughout time as an adult continuing to learn new skills like once I get decent at tennis and I'm not really taking lessons anymore but it's sort of a part of my week maybe I'll go to something else like rock climbing or you know some other yeah some other skill like a painting class or something trying to do something that yeah there you go like trying to do something I'm just not super skilled at but our interest is in that I'm interested in um again I I find that sometimes people make time for the big shebang vacations but like are less cognizant more so of things that they could do on a weekly basis that would provide them a lot of playful time and would be really nourishing to the nervous system um so yeah it goes back to what i keep jokingly saying is the american way yeah right like it it's it's the epitome of go big or go home like i'm gonna suffer through my work life day after day week after week month after month and I'm gonna I'm gonna save and look forward to this one vacation like right, every right. every other year, and then we're gonna go balls to the wall and we're right. gonna go all out and it's gonna be this jam packed vacation with everything I ever wanted to do ever. 
and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to do like an extreme version of my work life again, and then an extreme version of vacation again. Right. And, you know, it's it's very similar to how a lot of us got to know nutrition. I'm either on a diet and I'm being strict, or I'm not on a diet and I'm eating all the cheesecake. Right. And these black and white extremes almost never serve us. It You'd be better off maybe having a less lavish vacation and using a bit of the funds toward something on a week to week. And it doesn't have to be crazy expensive. Like I started my painting hobby with one pack, like an eight pack of some um, canvases and a couple of colors of acrylic paint and a couple of brushes. And it wasn't, it wasn't a huge investment, but then obviously I got hooked on it and kept doing it. Um, or walking around in the woods. I used a free app on my phone to try to identify trees. And I just walked around. The only thing I had in my hand was a phone and the walking stick. That's it. I didn't yeah. buy anything special for that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, from a money standpoint, it's always an interesting situation. Like there's different ways that you could slice and dice it, but maybe you don't go on like quite a bit as big of a vacation but you take guitar lessons each week. Like my guitar lessons felt pretty cheap. I think they were $40 a week or something and they were a half an hour. Um, but I only took them for eight months. So it's not like I took them forever either. Like you have to think of vacations probably going to be less than that or more than that. Um, and so you could do like a, a, a smaller vacation or something because you did guitar lessons or again even thinking about the aura ring like would it be, be would you be better off spending four hundred dollars on an aura ring or that buys you 10 weeks of guitar lessons at forty dollars a pop and you could actually probably get the basics in about that time and like i could have probably stopped taking lessons at at three to four months and just learned on my own at that point so again like it's there's decisions from a financial standpoint there always is but and time the, right a lot of times it's just um you know how you prioritize different things and shifting some things around could really benefit you but yeah i i agree finding some novelty thing to do each week i think is is really great like some major form of play is a really good suggestion um yeah i think something novel and something you really enjoy or yeah. some combination of the two um but yeah i think that's what our nervous systems crave oftentimes yeah. and very frequently our nervous systems are not getting that because right. we're stuck in survival mode we're stuck in that like rat race scramble i just have to survive another day i just right. have to survive another week oh my god how am i going to be able to go to my cousin's wedding if they don't have any low fodmap options oh my god oh my god and like you know it's 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 tricky to do in the beginning but you've got to kind of pull yourself out of that a little bit and let yourself experience some joy honestly too i feel like this is another way that this loops in with like disordered eating and food fear is some food is completely devoid of nutrition, but it's freaking delicious. Yeah. And even though there's not a morsel of a vitamin or a mineral or fiber in that dang food, it could be therapeutic for your vagus nerve because 
you're enjoying right? You're enjoying the sensory experience of that food and that taste. Maybe it evokes some memories if it's like a recipe that you grew up with that you have fond memories with. Um, Maybe you're eating that special food with other people, you're at a wedding or a party, or you invite your best friend over to have a slice of cake, or whatever it might be. But I think enjoying our food needs to be discussed more. And it's, it's, we're in this weird point in life, I think, or like human existence, where for a really long time, the idea of enjoying your food, or eating something just because it tastes good, was ghastly and unheard of, right? Back at, you know, in the 90s, and early 2000s, like there was, you know, Metafast and Weight Watchers and Sally... Sally or uh, Jenny Craig and all of these and and if you told somebody, oh, I'm I'm going to eat a cookie because it's delicious, that would almost be like blasphemy in that <laughs> culture. But now, where the pendulum is swinging severely to the other direction, where now we have anti diet culture, and yeah. that comes with its own kind of issues, I think, and baggage. But um, I really think that addressing the orthorexia and the food fear and the obsessiveness about healthy eating is really important for your vagus nerve. Cause again, like I, I remember there was a, a student, I think I talked about this last week. There was a student in FODMAP freedom and she was talking about her diet and I forget the context exactly, but it was, she was talking about how clean her diet was. Everything she ate was organic, hundred percent. Most of her food was homegrown from her own sustainable garden and she gets, you know, pasture raised, grass fed meat, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all cool. But the fact that this was like a whole big conversation and she was talking about it that much and like kind of proving a point to everybody on the call. And that was when I came up with what I now call the Dorito test. And I just calmly asked her, uh, hey, what would you say if I told you to go eat a Dorito? And I might as well have said, what would you say if I told you to dip that kitten in barbecue sauce, grill it and eat it? The look of horror on this woman's face. And that opened a conversation for, okay, like there's some orthorexia, like you're really, really, really yeah. hell-bent on, on like clean eating, quote unquote, whatever that means. Right. Um, this is potentially problematic. And here's, you know, what you could do about it. But again, you know, when you're in that, when you're in that position where everything has to be squeaky clean and organic and pasture raised and grass fed and sustainably sourced and, you know, wild caught, and and you're just obsessing about all of that, there's not a ton of room for just letting go and enjoying your food. And I'm not even saying that that food is delicious. I'm just saying every now and then just saying F it and eating a cookie or something processed or something that's nutritionally not great. I I think that's therapeutic. Well, I love this conversation because the mental load and the mental toll that that takes too, it takes up so much time and energy internal when you're trying to think through eating super duper clean or eating restricted, like restrictive dieting in general takes up so much mental energy 
and and it can really pull you away from connecting so you're not able to connect maybe as much to both the things and people that you enjoy and I also wonder sometimes too about people that have really strong cultural foods I mean for example my husband's Persian um and you know if I was still struggling with gut stuff there's a lot of some of the food there's some of the foods I probably wouldn't have eaten back then um and I'm not even Persian but I could imagine being like a Persian person and not being able to eat this traditional Persian like bean soup and everyone's enjoying it and, and you're, you're not out. and you're kind of disconnected yep. and isolated from not only the people that you're with but also your culture there's a lot of strangeness there too and I've seen that with some of my clients that have more cultural foods. Um, hey, dear, don't, where, don't play with the pen near the mic. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I, yeah, I have, again, some, some clients that have more cultural foods like beans or, um, you know, some foods that you historically probably wouldn't eat if you're following a strict FODMAP diet. And I don't know, that, that gets really... Di- that There's an extra element of pain when you do that and discomfort when you're removing that as well um so yeah it's a real bummer i I just think the more you're invested in restricting the the diet the less you're probably connecting to people and you're spending so much time in your own head that you probably can't even connect to the things you enjoy too you have less time and energy to do that too yeah yeah well yeah, I think there's the amount of time and effort and energy that you're spending meal planning and cooking and prepping and freezing. Right. And, you know, there's that side of things. I like that you brought up the cultural significance. I've heard a lot of people say, my family is Italian, and now I can't eat onion and garlic. Right. What the heck? Right. Or, you know, or like, my family is Latina, and I can't eat beans and corn right. and and avocado and onion and garlic, like this is really difficult. So, and going back, your body, your nervous system wants that connection. So that is robbing you of that. Also, if you think about food, very often, that's how we connect with other people. So you might get invited to go to a party or, you know, go to the neighbor's house or go to a barbecue or something, you know, and if you are limiting your options and you can't eat the food at that event, well, there goes the sense of playfulness and the novelty and the neurostimulation piece of it too, because going to that new environment and interacting with new people and trying the new food, that that's all stimulating to your vagus nerve in some way. And now we're losing that potentially. So um, I think trying to get ahead of that as much as possible, even before you feel good, or even before you feel better, is really valuable. And it might need to be baby steps. It might be that you go to the party, but you bring your own food initially. Or right. you go to, you know, the cookout and and you only eat like one of the items at the cookout, but you're still grateful to be there and you you say thank you to the host and you know, you still enjoy the experience, that might be the baby step until you're ready to go to the barbecue and eat every single thing that they have. Um, But getting yourself out there and trying to reconnect with humanity and reconnect with the planet 
is really huge. And I think that's ultimately what the vagus nerve is trying to teach us. Mm -hmm. And where a lot of this research is going, it just boils down to, we need connection, we need to engage with each other and the world, and we need to feel like we're a part of something greater and bigger. Um, And there's no pill or essential oil or stimulation device or gadget that's going to help you do that. You just have to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. I I wanted to close the episode with uh, a, a couple of therapeutic exercises, though. So... Because uh, I know you have a, a hard stop in a couple of minutes here and need to, need to hop off. But again, from that vagus nerve workshop, again, her name is Jessica McGuire. I, I haven't found the Instagram handle yet, but um, when she was teaching the class, she gave a lot of good examples of different, you know, exercises and meditations and breath work and tips and tricks that you can do. Uh, two of them that I wanted to share, because I don't want to, you know, rob you of the experience of of her work, and she has a great Instagram to check out and follow. Uh, But two that I thought were really important to share on this episode. One is VU, V-O-O. You can Google this. And I just, I popped it into Google not that long ago, and it looks like there's some YouTube videos and some blogs. VU, all it is, is you are making that sound, but kind of low and long, kind of like a, a boat blowing its horn, like, and she said the goal is to try to like play with that, that noise and see if you can get it to a point where it resonates and you really feel it in your belly. Initially, you're going to feel it up in your chest and your throat, but if you play with it a bit, the goal is to eventually feel it primarily in your belly. So she was saying that's really, really great for getting out of the freeze side of fight, flight, freeze, appease. So like dorsal vagal activation. And it's really good for kind of waking up the digestive system. So try out a little bit of VU. Uh, the other one that I tested out last night and I, I liked quite a bit was deep pressure on your abdomen. And the way she coached it was she said, you get a kind of medium-sized ball, um, like a bit smaller than your head, I guess, to try to give you some context. Get a medium-sized ball that's like 50% deflated, and then you're going to lay on your belly on the floor, and then you position that deflated ball underneath your belly so that it's providing broad deep pressure into your abdomen. Um, I didn't have a ball when I tried it last night, but I have one of those kind of tube shaped bean filled pillows. I don't know if you've seen those, but it's maybe like yay big. And I just kind of folded that over a little bit and tucked that under my belly and it seemed to work just fine. Uh, If you're like me and you have a lot of beanie babies, you could just grab a bunch of beanie babies and (laughs) shove them under there too. Uh, But, you know, get something that's got a little give to it but it's it's enough that it'll give you some firm pressure and you lay on your stomach with that applying firm pressure to your abdomen for a minute or two. Um, and likewise, she said that that's really great for um, for kind of re-engaging the vagus nerve and helping the tummy. So 
those are just two of many exercises she talked about in that class. Um, if you would like to share another thought really quickly, I will look for that Instagram handle and that way I could cite her appropriately. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's tons of different ways that you could nourish your vagus nerve. I like that we primarily focused on the core is just connecting with the people and things you love. But I mean, breath work where you do delayed exhale breathing is one that I think can be helpful and easier to work in in a busy schedule as well. So doing like two to three minutes of breath work a couple times a day um, can be helpful, especially if you have a pretty busy schedule. I mean, meditation in general is going to be helpful for, for the vagus nerve. Um, I think yoga could potentially be helpful for the vagus nerve. Um, humming, singing. I think singing can be fun too. Sometimes um, doing a little goofy singing for especially moms of kids, I think it can be fun to do some goofy singing prior to like eating your food, kind of getting goofy and um, singing. I've had some some uh, parents too, who, when I've worked with kids who, was, who struggle with digestive issues to do a little singing before they eat too, just because it kind of relieves some of the pressure. Like it's just silly. Like it's not only that it might help the vagus nerve, it's just kind of silly and fun and playful. Um, but that's something that I'll have people do, especially kids, if they're kind of really tense at meals um, or, again, worried about gut stuff or particular about what they're eating, trying to make it a little bit goofy. And then, again, like the parents can get involved, too. I like that idea. And I like like dancing, too. You know, yeah, try, dancing, even if it's sure. something that feels ridiculous, like flossing. That I'm not going to try to reproduce that move for you on screen right now, but, you know, doing that or attempting, right. you know, some something that's, again, silly and fun, lighthearted. I think that that's a great primer for the vagus nerve. Um, right. The, I think, oh, sorry. I was just going to say the, the, probably the easiest thing to think about that's going to affect you personally, your vagus nerve, is thinking about things that, this sounds weird, but like turn you on or turn your joy light on. <laughs> We're getting sexy here today. <laughs> the IBS Freedom Podcast. Um, but yeah, that that just like they turn you on, not in a sexual sexual way, but like well, maybe in a Amy's sexual try, way too. I, oh gosh, Amy's trying to backpedal here, and she's not doing a good job of it. Well, but it, you know what I mean. What like lights that, up that, your nervous system, right? Exactly. What floats your boat, I mean. people? Right. Again, right. you talked about tennis. And you, you have like that Tennis little... Tennis turns me on, people. You you have that competitive bone in your body. And I've shared mm -hmm. with you before. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I don't, I don't dig competitive anything. I'll do movement that's non-competitive. But if it's anything competitive, I'm like, no, please, no. It turns me off. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, to each their own. Whatever floats your boat, honestly. Uh, that Instagram handle, by the way, for the... Uh, Jessica McGuire that I was talking about is repairing underscore the underscore nervous system. So, oh, I'm sorry. Underscore nervous underscore system. I gave you enough that you can find it. I mean, don't, let's not get nitty gritty here. But yeah, repairing the nervous system. She has a lot of really great posts on Instagram. Um, so just following her for free is a really good start. But her vagus nerve course was 
really well done, I thought, and, and gave a lot you of tools. You have to check her out. Check, yeah. check, check that little lady out. Yep, she's a good one to follow. But uh, we need to wrap up, my dears. So I will wrap up by sharing two more Instagram handles. Amy's at Amy underscore Holland Camp underscore RD. I'm at gut.microbiome.queen. Find us on the gram. Find Jessica McGuire on the gram. Again, I sadly couldn't get her on the podcast for us, but I will just plug her work anyhow on my own. We will see you in the next episode when we have a special guest. So stay tuned. Bye.